Libraries are commonly regarded as serious, even austere environments. So it may well come as a surprise that it's actually in a comedy that the earliest literary response, I think, in the world to a library occurs. It belongs to the hyper-intellectual tragedian Euripides, and he's visited by the peasant farmer protagonist in Aristophanes' comedy Acarnians, first performed in Athens in the late winter of 425 BCE. Um, and in this wonderful episode where he lies on his bed surrounded by rolls of papyri, um, you have the first real comic image of the library as a place inhabited by cerebral individuals who seem inherently funny to ordinary people of common sense. But the scene also demonstrates, all those years ago, how the very idea of book assemblage can stimulate artistic inventiveness. And the finds at Qumran alone have revealed the physical, material realities of the painstaking ancient process of book production. Not just in the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves, but even in the inkwells and the plaster coverings of the desks at which the scribes laboured. But my discussion today is about the idea of the library, and that idea we inherit more or less directly from the ancient Mediterranean and Near Eastern worlds. I want to talk about that rather than those nuts and bolts um, or the uh, cataloguing systems which the poet and librarian Callimachus pioneered more than two millennia before Melville Dewey created decimal classification. Now, my subject matter is enormous, even if we focus on the libraries of the pagan Greek speakers and Latin speakers and their neighbours to the exclusion of the Babylonians and Assyrians, from whose library organisations the Greeks and Romans certainly learned, or even excluding the Phoenicians, Egyptians and Jews, let alone the early Christians, who all inherited their basic, uh, sorry, the Christians inherited all their basic uh, library building plans from their pagan predecessors. Now, the erudite Varro in the mid-first century BCE compiled a monumental study of libraries called De Bibliothecis. Now, Varro was a, a, an intrepid encyclopedist whom Julius Caesar, no less, appointed public librarian at Rome in 47 BCE. And he was the only known ancient author to be granted the privilege of having a bust in his likeness installed in one of the main Roman libraries. You usually had to be a famous poet or author to do that. He was a librarian who did. And he, that was while he was still alive. Now, his enormous treatise was probably commissioned as an ideological accompaniment to Caesar's quest to expand the incipient Roman realm, to connect world literature with world empire. And even as early as this first century BCE, before the surge in library building under the high empire, uh, notably under Trajan in the early second century, Varro's project in compiling a universal historical treatise on libraries would have daunted anyone but him. And the history of pagan libraries was to continue for several centuries thereafter until 543 CE, 
when the Emperor Justinian finally closed down the Temple of Isis at Philae in Egypt, built under the same Ptolemies who built the library at Alexandria. Behind the massive colonnade of that temple, there had at least one enormous room functioning as a library. Now, the papyrus on which most ancient Greek and Latin books were recorded as an organic material was very vulnerable to rotting, wear, tear and mould. But forgers sometimes stained brand new papyri to make them look like authentic ancient texts. This reminds me of my children making me soap paper in tea when they had to make pirate maps for, for, for school. The ancients laughed at the difference between the materialistic bibliophile who collected books as commodities and the cultured person who actually understood their contents. And we all know somebody who collects a lot of books and never reads them. Lucian wrote a hilarious diatribe called Against the Ignorant Book Collector. Um, this man, who's very rich, buys shitloads of books, endlessly glues and trims them, applies cedar oil and saffron, keeps them in purple silk and leather cases. But, says Lucian, he is deluding himself because he thinks that by the multitude of books he can rectify his wholly deficient education. And the nouveau riche Trimalchio, whose banquet, vulgar, vulgar banquet, is described by Petronius in the Satyricon, boasts that his libraries rival those of the emperor. And Seneca actually confirms that rich men really did use banquets as opportunities to display libraries in which they'd never studied. Some of the most important advances in ancient intellectual life were the specialist libraries, such as the collection of theatre scripts in the state depository at Athens, organised by the theatre-loving statesman Lycurgus. And thank heavens for him, he's the reason why we can read all those Greek tragedies today. Others collected the writings of members of a particular philosophical school, such as the Stoics, whose centre of learning was on the island of Rhodes. And there the great Stoic polymath scholar Posidonius practised during the first half of the first century BCE. Pompey, Caesar, Cicero and Brutus all studied there with him. And Rhodes was also renowned as a centre of astronomical studies, so there must have been a huge astronomical library there. And that was a particular interest of the bookworm Emperor Tiberius, who spent several years uh, mugging up on astronomy on Rhodes. Now, libraries varied enormously in scale as well as in contents. Some private libraries were large enough to accommodate the leading lights of a whole philosophical school comfortably, such as the Villa of the Papyri, found in 1752 at Herculaneum. This was the vacation villa of no lesser figure than Julius Caesar's father-in-law, Calpurnius Piso, and the famous, world-famous philosopher Philodemus of Gadara supervised his patron's magnificent collection of Epicurean texts. And again, thank heavens, multispectral imaging has allowed the remains of some of them, the really important philosophical texts that we hadn't got, burnt by the same volcanic eruption which destroyed Pompeii in 79 CE to be deciphered. On the other hand, there were tiny book collections which could be carried around in handy containers, like this portable scrinium or kista on a Roman mosaic 
in Tunis. I just really want one of these for my papyrus rolls. It's probably held the parts, the actor's parts, or possibly whole plays, in which the actor portrayed here with his mask could um, uh, specialise. The seated man may be an author who's collaborated with the actor or much more likely his patron. But in between these extremes, there were small private libraries in which solitary misanthropes hid from the world. Xenophon remarks on the personal book collection amassed by the philosopher Euthydemus. The first public library may have been established by Clearchus, tyrant of Heraclea on the south coast of the Black Sea, northern Turkey, who died in 353 BCE. This Pontic despot had been educated at Athens by the two leading intellectuals of the time, Plato and Isocrates. And the tradition that he built, a public library, I think is connected with the ancient perception that the Greeks of the Black Sea were anxious to avoid the accusation that they lived in a cultural backwater. But it was the people of the first two generations after Alexander the Great who saw the establishment of the first libraries which can be described as public in the modern sense, even though scholars disagree on the nature and degree of public access, especially given that literacy rates in many ancient cities probably ran only between 10 and 20% of the population. Moreover, we are not really in a position to tell whether most public libraries allow borrowing of books at all, even to respected and trusted members of the intellectual community. One inscription believed to have belonged to the library which Trajan built at Athens in 132 specifies its opening hours and proclaims, no book shall be taken out, we have sworn it. It's a bit like the Bodleian. <laughs> the first great public libraries were set up in kingdoms established by Alexander's successors. Um, and the um, first, uh, biggest and most important was the Ptolemy's near legendary library in the Egyptian Greek city of Alexandria, founded by the Macedonian conqueror Alexander himself in 331. Um, and Plutarch tells us a beautiful story how he'd been instructed in the precise location by the shade of Homer, who visited him in a dream. Now, the Alexandrian Library was said to have been designed with the assistance of no less an intellectual figure than the Athenian peripatetic philosopher Demetrius of Phaleron, taught by Aristotle's student Theophrastus. So Aristotle was his intellectual grandfather. And the Alexandrian Library was either adjacent to or at least originally constituted part of the Alexandrian Museum, that's Museion or Temple of the Muses. And other book collections of all sizes were very often attached to or housed within temples. Indeed, in the late fourth century, Demetrius had educated himself by reading Aristotle's own amazing personal book collection assembled in another museon at Athens. Some libraries could be housed in public bars, and, and, and I find this confusing because you'd have thought the steam would have damaged them. Um, they often served as the ancient equivalent of a, of a leisure centre where social and sexual transactions could be conducted. So you went along, saw your prostitute, then went and read a book about sex, <laughs> or perhaps the other way around. Caracalla's imposing baths, built at Rome in the second decade of the third century CE, 
contained one room of texts in Greek and another in Latin. Some libraries also served as public records offices or as bookshops, as restaurants, as scientific laboratories. A library of a man called Pantinos at Athens uh, supported itself by renting out shops within the building complex, including one we know was actually a stonemason's shop. So you go, you borrow your book, and then you go and commission yourself an inscription. Libraries under Augustus could host meetings of the whole Roman Senate. Large ones with a colonnade often provided a place to take a very lengthy stroll. And libraries penetrated the unconscious mind to feature in people's dreams. Tiberius dreamt about the vast and beautiful statue of Apollo Temenites, which he brought from Syracuse in Sicily to adorn the library of his new temple. You could build a library to serve as a sepulchre for your eminent family or forebears. Celsus buried his dad, who'd been governor of the Roman province of Roman Asia in a lead coffin encased within a marble sarcophagus, which he had set into a vaulted recess of that famous Ephesus library. Hello, Dad. Dio Chrysostom interred his wife and child in the courtyard of the library at Prusa in northwestern Turkey. And libraries could even be used in courtship rituals. In his attempt to impress the very brainy Cleopatra, the equally well-educated Mark Antony made her a present of the great library at Pergamon, all 200,000 volumes of it, collected by the ancestral rivals of Cleopatra's Ptolemy family, the Attalids. That was his wooing present. Now, we've dug up... Oh, we can see that one, sort of. There he is. Cleo, do you want the great library of the Attalids at Pergamon? Oh, yes, please. We've dug up large library buildings with no books left, like the beautiful Roman provincial library excavated in the grid city at Timgad in Algeria. And that was excavated by the French in the early 20th century. And this became the colonial set for avant-garde modernist actresses from the Comédie Française, such as Madame Sylvaine, who performed a version of Sophocles' Lectra in the pillars of the ancient library in 1907. We've dug up a rubbish dump containing whole libraries, but not a single brick, at the site of the ancient Greek town of Oxyrhynchus on a branch of the <coughs> Nile in Upper Egypt. The massive, massive uh, collection of Oxyrhynchus papyri included some of the contents <coughs> of at least one impressive private collection belonging to an Oxyrhynchite, and that collection, he or she had collected copies of really esteemed poetic works, such as Euripides' Hypsipyle, Pindar's Pians, and a very extensive collection of prose writers. Their collection, again, has given us texts we would not otherwise have. On the other hand, so that's where Oxyrhynchus is, that's a bit of an Oxyrhynchus papyrus, and that's the poor, uh, uh, forgotten, their names all forgotten, people hired by Grenfell and Hunt, who did all the work. On the other hand, we know about some fascinating libraries, even though they've disappeared altogether. And again, the most important example is the Library of Alexandria. 
But another later and actually more typical instance is the library which Pliny the Younger funded lavishly at Comum, now Como, in northern Italy, northern Italy, north of Milan, in about 97 CE. And we know about Pliny's library, which hasn't survived, because there does survive an inscription recording his benefactions to the town, along with a letter to a friend about it, which accompanied a copy of the speech Pliny delivered to town magistrates at the inauguration. The speech itself doesn't survive, but the letter does. Now, this Pliny was rich and very well-regarded imperial administrator and senator. And he describes some of the other themes that his missing oration addressed in the town hall of Common. The presence of the library will encourage my townsmen in virtue. I personally despise riches <coughs> and I uh, am happy in my freedom from the chains of avarice. My benefaction, said Pliny, deserves particular commendation because it's the result not of a parting fancy but of de a deliberated resolution. And I have decided to, sh to bestow on my townsmen a library rather than shows or gladiators. And now this last point is very interesting because another inscription shows us that an, a, another city's populace actually had reason to hope that the sort of benefactor who gave them a library might also donate gladiators. One such man kept a gift of a library to his grateful public with no fewer than 12 pairs, 24 of these violent public entertainers. So it wasn't bread and circuses, but books and circuses. Pliny's seems to be the first library ever donated by a private individual to a, a town in the Roman Empire, but it preceded a spate of similar institutions. These benefactions signalled the importance of an individual statesman from a particular landowning senatorial family and his role in fostering what was, in the case of Common, still a relatively new colonia of the Roman Empire. Uh, Victorian benefactors used to do similar things, not only in northern working-class towns, but in uh, cities in India and the Caribbean. The selection of books within it might be assumed fundamentally to reinforce rather than undermine the self-framing of that individual, his family, and the imperial regime he served. The selection or deselection of books for inclusion in a library's collection was already acknowledged in antiquity to have been a highly political issue. Suetonius tells us that if the emperor Caligula had been allowed to have his way, Homer Virgil and Livy, all of whom he loathed, would have been expelled, both their works and their statues, from all libraries. Caligula said that Virgil was a writer devoid of literary skill and erudition. Thank you, Caligula. Uh, and Livy, a very wordy and inaccurate historian. On the other hand, we may have so much of the historian Tacitus solely because a third century emperor who accidentally had the same name ordered all the libraries to make a comprehensive collection of Tacitus's works simply because he had the same name and he thought people might think he was a descendant. So the social and political role of the ancient library, I think, is arguably of less lasting importance than the actual concept of the library as an institution where the whole constitutes something infinitely greater than the sum of the parts. 
the parts of the individual records left by individual writers, but the whole is something far more ambitious, an instrument designed no less to preserve, than to preserve intact the memory of humankind. The scholars at the Library of Alexandria undoubtedly undertook the Herculean task of preserving the, preserving the entire literary output of the Greeks. That's what they wanted to do. And that's why they went to really extreme lengths to obtain a copy of every known work, even placing every book which arrived in their city port under embargo until copies could be made. And by conceiving this idea, the ancient Greeks also had to conceive the opposite idea, that such a memory could be lost. And that's a new literate version of the universal myth of the fall or the apocalypse. That is, the ancient experiment in the creation of collections of texts that even could, could even attempt to include everything that had ever been written in the history of the human race and indeed composed orally and subsequently written down, like the Homeric poems, that idea changed, I think, Homo sapiens' mental landscape forever. And so did the idea that the entire memory of the human race was vulnerable to erasure. There really were attempts in the Library at Alexandria, moreover, to include at least Greek translations of all the important works of other cultures and religions, notably the great books of the Jews. And I think that very noble ambition lies behind our desire today for libraries to symbolise a, a cosmopolitan and tolerant ideal. And that ideal is represented by the ancient library of Alexandria in a movie I really, really recommend you all to watch. And that is the Spanish-made movie Agora, 2009. The thoughtful actress Rachel Weisz leapt at the role of Hypatia, an Egyptian Greek scholar in the early 4th century CE. Hypatia was the daughter of the Euclidean mathematician Theon, alongside whom she worked at the Library of Alexandria. She's a real historical figure, uh, recently chosen for Matthew Parris' Great Lives show by Yanis Varoufakis, who turned out to be a great feminist, and I was delighted to be the academic consultant on that. In the film, Hypatia attempts in vain to save the library's unique collection from destruction when the Roman administration allows angry Christians to destroy all the institutions symbolising what they regarded as abominable pagan law, which they could not distinguish from witchcraft. But in this 20th century, 21st century reading, Hypatia virtually personifies the library as representative of a questioning science-based intellectual culture failing to withstand the arrival of an ignorant and fundamentalist strain of Christianity. And the scene where she tries, near the end, to rescue important texts, like, get the Aristotle, you know? <laughs> Where's Aristotle on comedy, you know? Uh, it is so brilliant. I show this as a, uh, to, to, to my students studying all eras to show how papyrus rolls were, you know, it very beautifully reconstructs everything we know about actual library organisation. And of course, you know, she is such a compelling actress uh, with such conviction that, that, that it, it adds incredible excitement to the whole scene. Weiss has said she was attracted to the role 
because the science and philosophy physically embodied in Hypatia as she worked at the library represent the possibility of a tolerant, science-based, multicultural future for humankind. She claims that the conflict in the movie is analogous to the struggle in America in 2009 of Christian fundamentalism versus science. She sounds, she says, for teaching Darwinian evolutionary theory or stem cell research. She is, she says, Hypatia, trying to come to grips with our place in the universe, and she's thinking not existentially of herself, she's thinking of the planet Earth. It's a humanist film. Now, this Hypatia in the movie is a direct descendant of the heroine of a, a major Victorian hit by Charles Kingsley, more famous for the water babies, but he wrote a novel called Hypatia, in, published in 1853. And that was what first put Hypatia on the map of popular culture as a very romantic figure. But paradoxically for Kingsley, Hypatia and her library did not so much represent Greek humanism as his own brand of adversarial and combative theology. He reassures us, contrary to all the ancient evidence, that his pagan Hypatia actually converted to Christianity before she was murdered. But Kingsley's muscular Christianity although embracing science and celebrating sex, was anything but tolerant towards other denominations and religions. This book was actually a strident polemic against Roman Catholicism and high church Anglicanism. But the novel was enormously popular and produced several spin-offs in the Victorian theatre, which all featured fantastic sets of the Library of Alexandria down on the Strand, including a famous stage adaptation performed at the Theatre Royal Haymarket in 1893. The novel, the plays and the recent movie all describe the Library of Alexandria and the woman who represents it in similar terms. The fall of the library is epitomised in these accounts by the sadistic Christian's assault on Hypatia's inevitably beautiful, fragile, papyrus-like white body, highly unlikely in an Egyptian Greek of Alexandria. Uh, but that's finally narrated in Kings's chapter 29. Um, this is the sort of painting, which I much disapprove of, so I don't know why I'm showing you, really, <laughs> of her about to be murdered. There was a whole rash of them. You can find one in almost all provincial art galleries. But readers have first met her in chapter 2 of Kingsley's book, evoc evocatively entitled A Dying World, which finds the heroine at work in that famous library which towered up the wonder of the world, its white roof bright against the rainless blue, beyond it, among the ridges and pediments of, no, pediments of noble buildings, a broad glimpse of the bright blue sea. And when we hear Hypatia's thoughts in this section of Kingsley's novel, she's contemplating the destruction of the library she now fears is imminent. She visualises in her mind the smashing of those statues. The libraries are plundered, the alcoves are silent, and she pledges to struggle in the last against the new and vulgar superstition of a rotting age for the faith of my forefathers, for the old gods, the old heroes, the old sages who gauged the mysteries of heaven and earth. Now, Hypatia, as a Greek speaker, of course, did not call the library a library, but a bibliotheke, a place to put, theke, 
rolls made out of papyrus, bublos. The Greek word itself wasn't actually the sole contender. We might have instead have inherited the word bibliophulakion, used in Greek of the royal archives in Egypt, which is a place to guard the papyri rather than just put them. And that might have been preferred by a certain stereotype of the possessive librarian. The Greek word, which came to be universally used in antiquity, however, is preferred, bibliotheke, is preferred in German, bibliothek, Russian, French, Spanish, Italian, and many others. The English word library has rather different resonance. Its root is liber, with a short i, the Latin term for the skin, bark, or rind of plants. And it was used to designate the thin rind of the ancient Egyptian papyrus plant, and eventually, much as the, the, the term for a, a tree term, the Latin term, which is caudex, was adopted in the word for codex, an early book, the bark itself, the liber, becomes the book. But our idea of the library in English-speaking lands is affected by a word, so you didn't know you were going to get an etymology lesson today, did you? A word from another semantic root than the factual descriptive bibliotheque. And there's been continuous confusion between the idea of books and the foliage-related Roman god liber pater, whose name was connected with the root liber, where the I is long, as an adjective which means free. Liber pater, associated with adult rights to free speech, was a favourite of the Roman plebeian class, it's god of freedom, and the recipient of the great festival of the Liberalia on March the 17th. But the false etymology, disguised by the variation length of that vowel I, seems already to have been causing problems in antiquity, since liber pater is often depicted with accoutrements which remind the viewer of botanical bark. And a very fine example comes from Dacia in modern Romania, the last province to be added to the Roman Empire. Perhaps the Romanians learning Latin didn't make much difference between liber and liber. Isn't he lovely? So that is liber pater, god of freedom, but he's got bark all up his post and he's got a, a little sort of dwarf man beside him with sort of barky loincloth. A major sanctuary and uh, statue of the Roman god um, has this one has been discovered in Romania and in English speaking lands the visual rather than the aural similarity between the words library, liberty, liberalism, liberal arts have been an ideologically potent result of a completely false etymology. You're going to the library, you're actually going to the Barcorium. <laughs> We've already seen that Julius Caesar saw the potential of libraries as a tool or at least adornment of empire, but he's also one of the several putative villains in the long-standing mystery tale, Who Destroyed the Library of Alexandria? And the other main suspects are those anti-intellectual bishops um, in the years around the death of Hypatia and the Arabs in the 7th century CE. Perhaps they all did it. Perhaps they kept rebuilding. In Act 2 of Bernard Shaw's play, Caesar and Cleopatra, there's a dialogue in the royal palace of Alexandria between Julius Caesar and not Cleopatra this time, but Theodotos of Chios, as a historical figure, 
Theodotus is characterised as a highly unscrupulous rhetorician and tutor to the young king Ptolemy. He's also one of the many opportunist and brutal murderers of Pompey. He's, he's a thoroughly bad lot, but he's a librarian. Theodotus brings news to Julius Caesar that fire has spread from the ships and the library of Alexandria is in flames. Bernard Shaw made Caesar reply, is that all? Theodotus is incredulous and outraged. All, Caesar, will you go down to posterity as a barbarous soldier too ignorant to know the value of books? Caesar says, well, actually, I'm an author myself. But... He says, it's better the Egyptians should live their lives than dream them away with the help of books. And the dialogue continues. Theodotus, what is burning down there is the memory of mankind. Caesar says, a shameful memory, let it burn. Theodotus, wildly, will you destroy the past? Caesar, aye, and build the future with its ruins. Caesar says the library is just a few sheepskins scrawled with errors. Great play. The context, though, is imperialism. Indeed, the advance into northeast Africa of the Roman Empire destined to become the greatest empire the West had ever yet seen. Ethnicity is a crucial issue. Shaw has Caesar refer to the users of the library not as Ptolemaic or Macedonian Greeks, but rather patronisingly in this context as Egyptians, a term which bore a particular meaning to an audience of Britons at the play's premiere in 1898, when their armed forces had bombarded and ruined Alexandria and possibly incredibly important Greek monuments. Thank you very much. We did that in 1882, and they were currently occupying the country. But Shaw also sets up a series of antitheses which the idea of the library triggers in his ancient interlocutor's mind. Memory versus action, the past versus the future, vicarious experience versus first and experience of life, dream versus reality, the rights to survival of living humans over the right to survival of the thoughts of dead humans recorded on the skin of dead animals. We also think about the conflict between war and peace, man of action versus passive recluse, the soldier's weapon, the shepherd's staff, between European war stories and European pastoral. So the ancient library becomes a sign of infinitely more than a collection, however large a papyrus rolls. It takes on a quasi-metaphysical status. Just as the Sumerians called libraries the ordainers of the universe, the Romans could even envisage the goddesses who determine human destiny, the parci, or fates, as librarians. In the 5th century CE, the very late pagan writer Martianus Capella described the parchi as librarians of the gods and the guardians of their archive. The library is a tool which can both liberate and depress. Bernard Shaw had, of course, not read Michel Foucault's The Archaeology of Knowledge, 1969, in which book collections or archives of any kind were subjected to their first major critique as institutions for the collation of knowledge in the service of mechanisms of power. And Shaw did not know that by the late 20th century there would emerge a powerful feminist and post-colonial suspicion of universal monolithic repositories of knowledge. He didn't know that people would claim the impossibility in any ideologically conflicted world, 
let alone a truly democratic one, of any single institution accommodating the inevitably antithetical subjectivities of all its inhabitants. Nor had George Eliot read Foucault when in Middlemarch, 1874, she made the library of the awful classical pedant Edward Casobon stand for everything which prevented the flowering of real intellectual inquiry, let alone love, in the education-starved Dorothea's soul. Now, when he claimed that Alexandria was the cultural capital of the world by founding its library in the early 3rd century BCE, Ptolemy I, Sotir, had certainly not read Foucault any more than Eliot or Shaw. Ancient creators of libraries were always either very powerful, like Ptolemy or Trajan, or just rich, like Pliny. They always presented the creation of a library, whether public or private, as self-evidently a good thing. They would have all decried the destruction of the libraries of Alexandria, or anywhere else for that matter, in universal chorus with Shaw's hyper-intellectual professor of rhetoric, Theodotos. Most of the voices we hear from antiquity, although by definition the voices of well-read men, talked about libraries only in ways that implies that they improved and refined the quality of their own literary outputs. Cicero greatly valued his own enormous collection of books and called the library the mind or brain of a household. The famed rhetorician and literary critic Longinus, who wrote on the sublime, was described wholly flatteringly by Eunapius as a living library, bibliotheke empsuchos, and a walking museum. So it's important to ask whether there were any voices in ancient Greek or Latin which ever foreshadowed Shaw's Caesar or Foucault in suggesting there might be negative consequences for cultural civilization, politically, intellectually, or aesthetically negative, in the uncritical adulation of libraries. And the answer is, yes, a very few. Polybius, Greek historian from Arcadia and a soldier who rose to prominence at Rome at the time of the Republic in the 2nd century BCE, travelled incessantly. In his histories, he launched an assault on an earlier Greek historian called Timaeus of Sicily. Timaeus spent four decades in Athenian libraries writing a massive 40-book history of Greece from earliest time to the Punic Wars. We haven't got it. Sorry, I don't really regret it. <laughs> Polybius has at least two axes to grind against Timaeus, one political and one more private and Oedipal. But even so, what he says about libraries as a man of action who wrote history reveals in the ancient discourse one strand to which we very rarely have access. Timaeus, says Polybius, entirely employs, avoids employing his own eyes, prefers to employ his ears. The knowledge derived from hearing is of two sorts. Timaeus diligently pursues one, the reading of books, but was very remiss in his use of the other, the interrogation of living witnesses. Inquiries from books may be made without any danger or hardship, provided only that one takes care to have access to a town rich in documents or a library near at hand. After that, you only have to pursue your researches in perfect repose and safety and compare the accounts of different writers without exposing oneself to hardship. Personal inquiry, on the contrary, requires severe labour and great expense, but is exceedingly valuable and the most important part of writing history. Now, Polybius certainly had a point. How many of us have had our perspectives altered on a poem or historical event by visiting a physical space related to it or talking to an eyewitness? 
Um, I was talking to the new provost of Gresham earlier about how our children, um, his and mine, were completely inspired by a particular Roman site at Split. It changes you. But the Hellenistic... Uh, oh, yes, and, 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 and Herodotus and Thucydides didn't have libraries, right? The two great early Greek historians. They had to go out on the road and talk. But the Hellenistic Greek libraries fertilised many genres of scholarly prose, it must be admitted. Science, biography, Lucianic dialogue. The third director of the Alexandrian Library was Eratosthenes of Cyrene in North Africa, an incomparable geographer who succeeded in calculating the circumference of our planet to within 50 miles. Amazing. And it's almost inconceivable that Claudius Ptolemy could ever have made the advances in astronomy which resulted in his Almagest without the earlier treaties on cosmology, trigonometry and geometry which he consulted in the libraries of Roman Egypt. When it comes to poetry, a few brave souls proposed that libraries weren't always beneficial to the artistic quality of new works produced. The most famous of all is a satirical poet called Timo, a coeval of the famous poets associated with the early decades of the library in Alexandria under Ptolemy II. Theocritus, who wrote pastoral idols, Apollonius, author of um, only surviving Greek epic on the Argonauts, and Callimachus, who you need 25 footnotes to read one line of. I mean, it makes Ezra Pound look accessible. It's not my kind of poetry. The independent-minded Timon despised their great project of editing all the old poets. He despised Zenodotus, the first librarian and corrector or critical editor of Homer. When Timon was asked how best to obtain the pure text of Homer, he said the only way would be if we can find the old copies, not those with modern corrections. Now, Timon wasn't financially supported at Alexandria, and he sarcastically expressed his views on the library in another famous quip. Many are feeding in populous Egypt, scribblers on papyrus, ceaselessly wrangling in the nest of the muses. His brilliant image is of rivalrous chicks in a nest trying to outscribble and outsquawk each other to get the most feed from whichever Ptolemy it was. These poets, financially supported and guzzling Ptolemy's food, are scribbling on the papyri, but of their own free will, vying for stipends, in contrast with Timon's far more independent and freely spoken satires, which did not survive because clearly none of those librarians was going to put a copy of Timon's rude poems about libraries on the shelves. Might we have enjoyed better poetry from these men if they had not been so immersed in the contents of the library, let alone so focused on praising the monarchy which bankrolled it? The aesthetic and political became entwined in early Alexandria in a wholly new way, precisely because of the presence of all those old books. The weight of the past Greek literary tradition exerted an influence over the new poetry of the new political order. Almost as quickly as Ptolemy had brought the great poets of his new empire to his HQ in Alexandria, I believe innovation in Greek poetry began to dry up. I had colleagues who would probably shoot me for saying that. But the Latin poets needed book collections as they began their project of creating Latin poetry. 
out of the much, much smaller vocabulary, rougher consonants, and far more limited metrical possibilities available in Latin. Catullus says the personal library he needed to help him write poems contained thousands of texts. Horace said he needed copies of the Greek Plato, Menander, Eupolis, and Archilochus before he could even start. By the mid-first century BCE, Greek literature had been in existence for seven centuries, but literature in Latin for not much more than two. And the simple quantitative difference between the outputs in the two languages became painfully obvious with the opening of the first public Roman libraries in the early Augustan era. And this was especially so, as it was customary to shelve works in the two languages separately, often in quite different rooms. So you had walls and walls and walls of Greek, green lobes, and four Latin lobes. But by 30 BCE, the time of the deaths of the last Ptolemies on the Egyptian throne, Cleopatra VII and her son by Julius Caesar, the Romans were implementing the most momentous cultural appropriation that had ever taken place anywhere in the world. They conducted the wholesale transfer of the major elements of Greek religion, myth, legend, philosophy, literature, manners, custom and plastic arts to a Roman setting and their translation into a Roman idiom through which they've come down to us and libraries were absolutely central to this project. And I'm going to finish with Ovid. The idea of the library for the wonderful poet Ovid, exiled from Rome in his, what is now Romania, the library became representative of the civilization he missed so much as a whole. The first poem of his exile collection, the Tristia, or Sad Things, takes the form of a speech by a book, the book of the Tristia itself. The book, like Ovid, is homeless and desperately seeking a library shelf on which to settle. It finds one man in Rome who can point out the libraries. And actually, at this chronological moment, there were three public libraries. Ovid's poetry book visits each of them in turn. So it's like going to the British Library, the Senate House Library, and another one. First, it approaches the Palatine Hill, home of the Temple of Apollo, with its library established by Augustus himself. And this library says, no, you can't come here, because Augustus had banished him. Then the book fails to be allowed into the library of the portico of Octavia, Augustus's favourite sister. Third and last, the book is refused entrance to the oldest of the three, the library in the atrium Libertatis, open no later than 28. Ovid's poem shows a literary reflection of the truth that the great public libraries of Rome partly functioned as instruments of censorship. And to underline this intuition, I conclude with the final elegy of the same sad book by Ovid, Tristia 3.14. It's addressed to a senior librarian. Augustus died in 14 CE to be replaced by that bookworm Tiberius. Ovid died about three years later, and we don't know the exact date of Tristia III. But we do happen to know the name of the man that Tiberius appointed to the august office of commissioner of libraries, as well as the less well-defined role of advisor. He was called Tiberius Iulus Papus, freeborn Roman citizen from the Greek East. And this super librarian's tomb inscription amazingly survives, having been discovered east of Rome on the Via Prinestina. Sacred to the shades for Tiberius Iulus Papus, son of Zoilus 
of the Fabian tribe, advisor of Tiberius Caesar Augustus, also in charge of all the libraries of the emperors from Tiberius Caesar until Tiberius Claudius Caesar, erected by Tiberius Julius Nico heir. It's just possible that this august post may not have existed during of its lifetime, but I think it did. Anyway, its creation soon after his death indicates the cultural power which the men in charge of the imperial book collections were already accumulating. I'm glad to say Ovid's books did survive. Some other librarians obviously liked him more than Augustus's. Ovid's voice from the Pontus was addressed to a man or man just like Commissioner Pappus. Ovid begs him to make sure that his works are given places in the library shelves. I beg you, as an enthusiast for new poets, to do anything in your power to keep my corpus of work in town. I was sentenced to exile, but no exile sentence was passed on my books. They don't deserve to be punished along with their master. And to me, this is the most profound statement of the importance of libraries to have survived from antiquity. In closing book three of his Tristia, with the direct appeal to the keeper of learned men back in Rome, Ovid's voice, he had no library there at all, speaks as none other from Mediterranean antiquity of the vital symbolic role that great book collections played in its imaginative life. So thank you. What do we know about the people who used these libraries and worked in them? I wish we knew more. I, I've actually, uh, in the course of that lecture, quoted most of the inscriptions that give us any real detail. What I can say is that certainly under the Roman, uh, by, by Roman times, almost all the uh, librarians and the scholars in general were Greeks from the East, that they were the intellectual ones. They were often uh, actually slaves or freed men who had, had won their freedom by being so hyper-intellectual. The aspect of ancient libraries where I think an incredible amount of labour went on I mentioned briefly the embargo on books that arrived in, uh, in Egypt. So you would get any ship with books on, and the, the librarians would, would get all the books on it to copy them out. How did they do that? Well, we think that they had a room maybe of many people as this, Greek slaves, probably intellectual Greek slaves, um, with one person would read out that one book, and you could make 60 copies just like that. It was by dictation and mass armies. What, one of the most interesting questions about antiquity is always how did they manage to run those incredibly sophisticated cultures without the printing press? It, it, it's such a question. Good question. Thank you. Um, question about library catalogues. Yeah. What do we know? Anything? <laughs> yes. Um, we do. So, forget Dewey. <laughs> Callimachus came up with a system, and this comes out incredibly well in that film, Agora. Uh, you know, it's reconstructed very well. That actually, it was done by author, so you'd have, a whole, you'd have a circular room and then radial library shelves. And the statue of Homer would be at, at the thin end of the wedge of the Homer shelves. And then everything thought to be by Homer was put up um, in orders there, usually alphabetically, and the Greek alphabet is not so very different in order from 
the one that we use, of course. So you'd have um, uh, the Iliad would be before the Odyssey because it's I before O and so on. Um, the statue thing is really important. They, it was incredibly a big deal to get your statue put in a library, and that's why it's the fact that Varro got one, even though he was a librarian, not a scholar. So it's this sort of radial system and rolled papyri uh, al alphabetically. And he made a great thing called the pinax, or pinacus, which basically is a sort of board, board that you hang on a wall uh, for each author with the list of them keyed to probably a number so you could find the papyrus roll. But it was very much author-based. I don't think uh, probably you could do things like I will now go and, and, and research um, cones, the geometry of cones. You would have to go find the mathematician's name. Um, newish technology, especially LIDAR, has revolutionised exploration, particularly in Latin America. Is Europe just too known, too built, too well explored? Or is there a realistic chance that we might actually start finding some of the lost texts that we would all like to know more about? Great question. Are we going to find any more lost texts? Yes, of course we are. It happens really all the time. Uh, for a start, we haven't finished deciphering the Oxyrhynchus collection. It hasn't haven't remotely got to the end. There's been rather a scandal over the person in charge of that, and there's a bit of a hiatus going on. Um, the, every time a new excavation happens, obviously people are on the lookout. The problem with mainland Western Europe is that it's too wet. So it's very unusual to find any form of paper papyrus surviving from antiquity. We found almost all of them in much drier climates, but fortunately for us, uh, the, 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 both the, the Macedonians and the Romans conquered many lands with very dry sand, like Egypt and so on. We do occasionally, I mean, we've managed to find bits of text from... Um, um, Hadrian's Wall um, of Vindolanda again accidentally burnt you know it's an accidental burning has often uh, those, are, those are not high literature the Vindolanda texts which are still coming out um, say things like uh, the Roman soldiers from Gaul have run out of beer please send some they do there is actually one that says that or we need a chicken uh, the quartermaster to, to, to a merchant, we need a chicken for somebody's birthday next week. <laughs> you know, we're not uncovering, sadly, uh, Varro's uh, on libraries or uh, Fatsmore, the one I was, I was rude about, Timaeus of Sicily's 40-book history of Greece. But we might, we might easily. Um, and, and since the Oxyrhynchus finds in the late... And other Egyptian sites, like Antinopolis, in the late... Um, uh, 19th century, Arche archaeologists tend to be much more sensitive about sending in the bulldozers. So that's good. Your percentage of 10 to 20 for literacy rate, yes. what's that based on? And also, is that the same from 700 BC Greece to the end of the Roman Empire? Or, yeah, what, what do we know about that? I, the man who's in charge of the best books on ancient libraries, who, if you saw the footnotes to this, you would see his name. I'm very, very pleased to have an opportunity. He's, he's Gregory Wolfe, Greg Wolfe, who uh, is, is a Brit who uh, is now at UCLA, University of California at Los Angeles, 
go for the demog demographics, go and look at Greg Wolf's books on ancient literacy and ancient libraries. I've lifted that, that stat pretty much uncritically from other scholars. You can do it if you know something like the percentage, which we quite often do from an inscription or something, of the unfree population, the free population, their ethnic background and so on. If you've got some sense of those proportions, we also can marry those to statements about the fact you can't expect that person to read because they're a Thracian slave or, or, or whatever. I mean, it's a complicated process. No, of course it was, second question, thoroughly varied across that span. For example, in democratic classical Athens, we know that every adult male citizen had to be functionally literate. They had to be functionally literate because they, they had things like... Um, uh, the lists of people summoned up for going on a military campaign were posted. They had to be able to scratch names when they ostracised people. You know, they had to be able to read, but again, being able to read is not the same as being able to write. There are different degrees of literacy. I don't know how many people in Britain ever borrow books from libraries today. I'd actually be interested to know whether it was more than 20%. Uh, but that's another question. Do we know how many public libraries were in Rome under Augustus? Well, there were these three big ones I was talking about. These are the ones that Ovid's write to his poem. Uh, I, I actually will just have to say, good, honest academic, I don't know. I don't think that these are the three that everybody talks about. There were certainly lots of private ones. I'd, I'd like to thank uh, Professor Hall very much for a fascinating, great lecture this afternoon. Thank you thank very you. much.